welcome everybody to the Wright County GOP podcast. As usual, uh, the opinions and basically everything I say over this episode are solely my own, so you cannot hold the executive board or anybody else affiliated with the Wright County GOP responsible for my insane opinions, which um, some possibly believe I may have. But we're going to go ahead anyways. Uh, Today we have the executive, no, give me your, we have Anna Matthews. That's correct, executive director. The executive director of the Minnesota GOP party. Um, And we're going to go through you know her her uh, her early life and everything leading up to what she's doing now and uh, she's going to tell us how she got here and then we're going to obviously talk about things that are relevant to the current state of politics in Minnesota and the GOP party but um, without further ado Anna how are you I'm doing well Daniel thank you for having me Absolutely um let's start with uh where did you grow up i grew up in mendota heights minnesota so literally just across the river from saint paul Mm -hmm. um i went to a private high school um and before anybody says anything about that just remember that uh the average dollar amount spent on a student in minneapolis public schools is something like twenty five thousand dollars so if any democrats (laughs) want to complain about private schools just remember that number how much they spend for a student. Um, And then I went down to um, a little school in Kansas, Atchison, Kansas, Benedictine College. Um, I graduated with a degree in political science. And then after I graduated, I actually taught fourth grade. Um, I didn't immediately start working in politics. Um, I was in College Republicans. I had done um, some, you know, volunteering and had some political internships and things like that. Um, But I actually started teaching. And that was a really interesting experience because um, you get to see in real time how policies play out, right? And I think that um, you have to remember, like you, me, everybody, politics matters because they translate to policies and policies matter because they translate to people, right? And so at the end of the day, if my, you know, nine-year-old fourth graders, 10-year-old fourth graders, um are suffering the consequences of these policies um, and it's negatively impacting their lives, that um, you know just shows me that politically things are not working. Um, and so anyways, after I finished teaching, came out of that with kind of a, a renewed fervor, we'll call it, um, for you know politics and, and political activity and changing some of these things. Um, and then I moved home to Minnesota. I worked a couple of um, other jobs actually before um, going to work for Congressman Tom Emmer, now Whip, and that's how I met you, because uh, I would go to the Wright County uh, BPOU meetings for Tom. And so I worked for Tom from 2019 through 2022, January of 22. And then at that point, I went down to Kansas, um, Kansas City, Kansas, uh, to work on one of the, at the time, nationally targeted congressional races. Tom was the chair of the NRCC. Um, Amanda needed a campaign manager. They didn't have one in state. I'm, I'm sure that you know that we just lack um, a lot of talent, honestly, in the Republican <laughs> Party. That's one of the things that we need to work on. 
um, building the bench and training more people and retaining better operatives. Um, and so because I had some ties to Kansas and Tom had the tie to Amanda, I went down there to manage her race. And she ended up losing that race, uh, which I can talk more about if you want to get into that. But um, I came home um, and then just about a month and a half ago on August 7th, I started working for the state party. That's kind of the long story that was, short of yes, it. Yes, that was a... Uh, I don't know if that was more info or less info, well, but we, I'm happy there was to a lot of things in there that we, I was yeah, going to get to um, anyways. Uh, what, going back, mm-hmm. uh, what did your parents do? So my mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I have five siblings, so Whoa. there were six of us. So when you look at those uh, daycare costs for six kids, um, you know, <laughs> totally not, not exactly economical to, no. to go back to work. Um, and my dad actually was and still is an insurance underwriter. Huh. So nothing glamorous. Um, my parents are um, both Republicans, um, but they're not necessarily like super politically active. Like they're regular voters, but they're not like operatives or protesters or Mm -hmm. you know quote-unquote activists i wouldn't describe them as activists how uh and elaborate on how did you find your job with emmer yeah actually um it's kind of a funny story um so when i was a sophomore in college i was still planning to do an education major and so I was take I was going to double major in secondary education and then social sciences. And so I had to take this constitutional law class to check one of the boxes for a political science credit for this social science double major. And um, the the poli sci professor um, was taking a group of students down to the Iowa caucuses, and this was February of 2016. Um, and so I went down to the Iowa caucuses. It was a ton of fun. It was super interesting and. I got to know a lot of the other poli-sci majors, you know, because I, again, was an ed major um, at the time, Um, but really just kind of like figured out that you can actually make a living doing political work. Like, I I didn't know that growing up. Like, I didn't know the ins and outs of the business. I didn't know that, you know, there's all these different options for jobs and part-time things and consulting and firms and whatever. Didn't know. So anyways, that summer, um, I got an internship um, with Congressman Jason Lewis Mm -hmm. up here in Minnesota. And then I, I worked um, in a couple of other capacities. Like I, I worked for a nonprofit that put out a, a you know political publication. I um, worked for um, another member down in Kansas and just did some different things. But then, like I said, I taught after I graduated. And so when I moved home to Minnesota, I was like, you know, I, I really want to um, get back into this. And so I actually just, this is very old fashioned. I ended up just making a bunch of phone calls. And calling political people that I knew and saying, do you know, have any job openings? You know, here's kind of what I've done. Here's my experience. And one of the people I called was Tom Emmer's office. Um, hmm. And so because I'd worked for Lewis, um, I knew some of the people, you know, in common. I just said, hey, you know, here's my resume. I've uh, been on the circle a little bit. Are, are you guys hiring? And they said, we actually are hiring in a couple of months. We'd love for you to apply. So it was literally just a phone call. Huh. And so nice. I would really, I always tell people, you know, when you're job hunting, I don't like the method of like, I need a job and then you go and you look on, you know, indeed.com or whatever and you see what's available. Like I always tell people like sit down, make a list of places where you would like to work or think, you know, feel, um, not fields necessarily, but whatever niche within the field that you want to go into and do it the reverse order. Like call those people up and say, Hey, do you have an opening for me? Or what would you suggest I do? So that's why I got my, my job with Tom. My grandma, um, always was big on if you submit an, a, uh, a resume 
you call to follow up because yes, that so, will yes. possibly get the person fielding the call to dig your resume out of a pile and put it on top and say, yep. oh, yep, we have it. Yep. So No, it's, I mean, and, and I've hired people too, you know, politically. And there's a huge difference between somebody who, I guess when I'm thinking like, what type of person do I want to fill this role? There's a huge difference between somebody who just sends you a resume and never follows up and then somebody who sends you a resume and then calls and introduces themselves and they're kind and polite and you go wow i would really love for you to represent me you know you have a great mm -hmm. um you have a great manner of uh communicating with people so 100 percent, a personal touch always helps absolutely what was what would you say was the crux of your job with emmer um really two components so i only ever worked on tom's campaign mm -hmm. so obviously now that he's whip he has a whip office in dc he has an official office in dc he has an official office here and then he has the campaign office so i was only ever on the campaign office but when i was brought on my initial job description was comms and field and so i did help with a lot of the the campaign communications and then also um you know just um I mean, it entailed a lot, like hiring interns and managing interns and, um, you know, like literally everything, like the yard signs and, again, the comms piece of it. Um, but going to BPOU meetings, uh, representing Tom when he couldn't be there, coordinating parades. So really just, um, again, the 6th District is relatively safe, right? But that doesn't mean that we can just let it go. Mm -hmm. um, St. Michael and Albertville are getting more and more purple. Um, Chanhassen, you know, they, I uh, should say we lost a house seat there, right? So just making sure that um, like Republicans in the district really had the resources, um, you know, that they needed on on the congressional side. Um, so, again, BPOUs, answering questions for people. Um, I know that's not a perfect answer, but that was that was basically what my job was. No. Yeah. No, it was perfectly fine. Um, my next um, my next question was take us through. A week during the most heated part of the campaign season. Like, sure. what would you do? So yeah, so when I I'll I'll talk about Kansas for this one. So um, I was Amanda's campaign manager. So September October, obviously super busy. Even August, basically the way that they describe the campaign manager role is that it's your job to keep the trains running on time. So like for example, we'll have a you know digital fundraiser. Uh, who we've hired to be a vendor, right? But every single day, they're still sending us content to be approved. They're sending us the latest fundraising numbers. They're sending us projections. They're saying, do you want to increase your spend this month or do you want to stop? So even though it's not, you know, per se my job to get into the nitty gritty of that digital fundraising program, it's my job to keep that going and make those decisions with it. So you're managing that piece of it. You're managing uh, the in-state uh, fundraising. You're managing... Um, the national uh, fundraising, um, and then also, I mean, you're, you're, you know, the point of contact for the media. Um, you're managing the staff. When I was down in Kansas, I had, I think, 12 different field staffers. I had a comms director. I had an event coordinator. Um, I had a lot of volunteers that were kind of more, uh, you know, they weren't paid. They were volunteers, but they were more regular. Um, you're managing the relationship with the NRCC. You're managing the relationship with the RNC. You're managing the relationship with your general consultant and then the fundraising consultants. Um, and so it's, again, it's, it's your job to kind of look at all of these pieces, harmonize them, prioritize, and then keep the trains running on time. So like practically most days I'd wake up by 7.15 with my phone ringing, you know, somebody needing <laughs> something. 
whether it's again fundraising approvals, whether it's you know the the NRCC is you know helping us place an ad buy-in, they need that. Whether it's the ad creator saying we have the latest draft, can you send this out to people and collect the feedback and get it back to us? Um, but then going into the office, doing our daily staff meeting, getting the door knockers out for the day, um, you know, answering questions from reporters, checking in on how our events are going, uh, RSVPs if we need people for a parade, you know, sending out that recruitment email. Um, the other thing that campaign managers do is essentially managing the candidate, right? So anytime that the candidate goes somewhere, they're usually not going by themselves. So usually you're with them. If they're doing an interview, if they're going to a you know school board breakfast, whatever, um, you're also managing their calendar as well. So you're really kind of the point person to juggle all of these balls, even if I'm not the ad pro or the you know GC. It's you're like the the um, how should I say it like first in line full-time person who's responsible for the campaign so yeah it can be crazy but also yeah, really I fun. can't even imagine like every day is different and the thing <clears throat> I like about politics too is I'm not sitting in an office from nine to five every day you yeah. know I would go crazy if I had to be in the office from nine to five every single day but when you're out on the campaign trail I mean we had came and did an event for us you know and so that was one of the projects that we worked on um, we had different um, like, um, who was, I'm forgetting his name now, the guy who ran for whip against Tom. Like, Emmer came to Tom to do a fundraiser for us, you know, planning that event. Mm. Um, it wasn't Jim Banks. What the heck was his name? This is going to bug me, but whatever. You know, when he came to town, um, you know, we would do media roundtables. So you're planning those, you're contacting reporters, mm-hmm. you're fielding questions. Um, Sounds stressful. A, a grassroots piece of it. It is, it is stressful in that it's fast paced, Oh yeah. but I really had a great team in Kansas. Like I had a great comms director. I found a great volunteer coordinator to hire. Um, and anytime that you do campaigns, there's so many people who want to step up and help. Like, and I think sometimes it can be hard to accept that help, but if somebody walks into the office and says, Hey, I'd love to help you. What do you need? Don't just say like, Oh, we'll let you know. Say, you know what, I'm having a really busy day. Can you please go drop off these 20-yard signs? And they'll oh, sure. do it. You know, can you please write a tweet for me? Or we need to submit an op-ed on this. Can you please write it up? Mm-hmm. And so if you're willing to involve people, your life gets a lot easier. That makes a That's lot of sense. That's just my my personal take. Yep, that makes sense. Okay, so from, um, <laughs> from complete pissant, which I say that jokingly because obviously being involved with Congressman Emmer is not that at all. To big cheese at the Minnesota Republican Party executive director, mm-hmm. uh, what would you say your job description is now? So really, um, the things that I did for Tom, I'm still doing a lot of those same things at the party but only times eight, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, helping, um, you know, the BPOUs just in CD6, it's like now I've got all the BPOUs in the state, right? Um, And even though, like, Tom's job isn't to, you know, manage BPOUs, like that's CD6's job, um, you know, they would still call with questions or they'd say, you know, you 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 work in politics, you've got a school board candidate, you know, do you have an opinion on this or that? Um, And so that, that sense of it is the same. And a big part of the reason that I got hired, why David Han hired me, the chair, is because he um, needed somebody who had grassroots experience. Like, our party is made up of people. 
like people will say like oh i don't like the the republican party in minnesota and it's like well you are part of the republican party in minnesota you know like every single bpou makes up our party every single person in the bpou makes up our party and so really david's opinion and my opinion is that if we don't start utilizing our people and empowering our people we're not going to succeed and so um communicating with people i mean again when i worked for tom you know we had delegates in cd6 who voted to endorse him um we do have a responsibility to those people to keep them apprised of what's going on and you know update them on his work and explain his votes or you know publicize um things that he's doing and so really with the party it's the same function there and just communicating like intra-party communications like i said i also did comms for tom right tweets emails things like that i'm doing all that for the party now um i helped you know oversee tom's digital fundraising program looking at that at the party too um managing staff did it at the party hiring people and, and placing volunteers um doing it all at the party so it's not entirely different the biggest difference is that now um we have targets that i have to focus on right so like we have you know six or seven uh, house seats that we lost by less than a thousand votes that we need to get back. Mm-hmm. So formulating a plan there. Um, we've got caucuses coming up, right? Like we've got to formulate a caucus plan on how that rolls out for, you know, the whole state. Um, it's it's really not that much different. It's it's just times eight. That's kind of how I would describe it. The, I'm still dealing with a lot of the same people. Obviously the the media people, a lot of the same people there. Um, Those terrible media coordinators. Well, I'm not talking about our BPOU or our Republicans or our Alpha News. I'm talking about like the Star Tribune, no, and the Reformer, and, and fielding fielding those um, fielding all those requests. So, in that sense, it's really not that much different, and it's very similar to a campaign manager role, where even though you know I don't know everything about fundraising, or I don't know everything about digital, or I don't know everything about comms. It's still my job to keep those trains running on time mm-hmm. and make sure that the quote gets to the reporter and the tweet gets out and the email is sent to delegates if there's questions about something. And, you know, David is at his event and helping to put together his schedule, things like that. So it's it's the same skill set, just times eight. Does that make sense? Yep. And I would imagine that's a bit of a stress reliever to not be into something where you're baptized by fire. Like Correct. You're, you're you're just continuing on in a larger scale Correct. than what you were yes. previously doing. Yep. Yeah, and I would say, you know, this job is more similar. I mean, I was never Tom's campaign manager, right? So um, I certainly w- did a lot of work, but it wasn't like everything fell on my shoulders at the end of the day, right? We had a campaign, mm-hmm. a campaign manager who had those responsibilities, whereas in Kansas, I was the campaign manager. And so this is kind of just similar to being in a campaign manager role, but for an entire state. You know, you are responsible to the people in the entire state, mm-hmm. media, voters, and then our people, our party people. And I should clarify that that was absolutely a joke, that being connected to the third most powerful Republican in the country is a pissant position. Well, I think that in... I, I just, <laughs> so if you're I listening think, to this at some point, Mr. Well, Emmer, I, I was kidding. No, he. I think um, he won't be offended. It's fine. He'll get the joke. He has a good sense of humor. Yes. Um, it's those Edina people. They have decent senses of humor. Right, you. You're from yeah, Dinah. We have to remind your listeners of that. <laughs> um, no, I think that all politics really um, starts at the local level. And I've bumped into some operatives, and they're like, oh, man, I can't believe I have to be a 
field operative on this campaign. You know, I need to be a chief of staff or I'm on my way to be a press secretary for the, you know, leadership position in the Senate or whatever it is. Just and I skip just, all those ladder rungs well, right just, to the top. Ser- seriously, though, like I will kid you not. I, I Well, I kid you not. I had a staffer in um, Kansas who I hired to be um, a field staffer. And um, I'll let, let this person go on name, but I hear stories like this from campaign managers all the time. And this person said, you know, I don't want to knock doors anymore because I plan to be a chief of staff someday, and this doesn't prepare me to be a chief of staff. And I said, you know, when Tom Emmer's chief of staff came to town and we were all helping to knock doors for a special election in January when it was like negative 12, his chief of staff came and helped us knock doors. Like, I just really dislike the attitude. How old was this person? The chief of staff? No, the one that wanted. Oh, it was a field staffer. So this person had just graduated from high school. There you go. And was working a summer job. (laughs) Um, Millennials. And... I think that we have to get rid of this attitude in politics where, like, you're too good for something. It's like, if you're a chief of staff, you're still going to be answering questions from reporters. You're still, you might have to chip in and help and knock on doors. I was at mm-hmm. the CD6 event last night with um, Burgess Owens, Congressman oh, yeah. Burgess Owens from Utah. Mm-hmm. And I sat next to his chief of staff. And, you know, again, he's the chief of staff, but he's still coming to this dinner and talking with people and making connections and, you know, being kind and polite. Like, you're never above anything in politics and i think that we just have to get rid of that toxic attitude um and i would say too if you hate door knocking and you hate talking to grassroots people and you hate doing that kind of local level community engagement politics is not the right field for you because that's really what it boils down to seriously and i don't love door knocking for 10 hours in a row but i still enjoy it for two three four hours you know until you get really hot and tired and it gets you know unfun mm-hmm. but i enjoy talking to voters i enjoy explaining to them all the horrible things that the democrats are doing and explaining how making a vote um casting a vote can truly make a difference in their life um after the um uh 2020 elections i went down to iowa and helped with um some of the um, ballot chasing and ballot curing for Marionette Miller-Meeks. She won her congressional race by six votes. And let me tell you, every single, you know, I should say there was every level of Republican person down in Iowa helping with that. There were chiefs of staff down there. There were district directors. I mean, there were consultants. And none of those people showed up to Iowa and said, you know, this is really below me. I can't believe that I have to help, you know, cure ballots to win this congressional race. They said, no, this is our job. We love it. We love all the pieces of it. And we're here to help get Mary Nat Miller makes across the line. And she won. They were down 150 votes when we got there. And I was a much more, um, uh, I should say, responsible state with their voting because they actually have provisional ballots. And so um, if you show up to vote and you're not uh, registered or you haven't provided proper identification you don't have your um you know um like uh electricity uh bill or gas bill or whatever to prove that you're at the residence living at the residence um they have you just cast a provisional ballot and then they don't count your vote until proven who you are in minnesota they count the vote and then after the election they'll send they'll try to prove who you are and that includes you know, sending out a postcard to your residence. But like, let's say that you wrote down a fake address and that postcard bounces. There's nothing that you can do about it because the vote has already been counted. So in Iowa, they had these provisional ballots. And so um, people have to go back and, and cure their ballot if they didn't have the appropriate information so that their vote could be counted. Um, but again, six votes. Like I, 
just love telling people and explaining to people and, and kind of empowering people that your vote actually matters and you can make a difference in the political process if you're willing to do it. I don't like this attitude of, oh, I'm just a victim of, you know, these two giant parties and I never have a voice and it's kind of hopeless, so why should I even participate? It's like, no, you can make a difference. Let's, we're going to go back to the election integrity stuff in just sure. one second. Yeah, um, sure. Do you have a, a vision um, for the party yeah. that uh, you are going to be working on? I'm, you know, you're a young, vibrant woman. Thank you. Um, absolutely. Um, do you think that Minnesota, the Minnesota Republican Party is looking to maybe add a little bit of youth or well, take us in a different direction? Because, I mean, people were, rightfully so, pretty upset after we got <laughs> ousted or we, we, yes, yeah. we well, did not win anything. The, and... the bitter losses hurt the most, right? Like the close losses hurt the most. But I just, I have to remind people, Ryan Wilson lost his race by 0.34%. Jim Schultz lost his race by 0.8%. Like we came closer in 2022 than we've come in a long time. And so we're making progress mm -hmm. and we were literally right there. And so for the people saying like, oh, we lost Minnesota, everything is lost, you know, we have to leave the state or whatever. It's like, yes, we did technically lose everything, but we're literally right there. You know, when you have a, a race in Chanhass, and I'll use this, Lucy Ream, the Democrat who beat Representative Greg Bowe, um, I think she lost by, or she won by like 432 votes. Don't quote me, but I think it was that. Mm -hmm. But I can look at the numbers and I can see that we had 300 ballots, uh, you know, from people who we think are Republicans who weren't turned in. And we have another 2,000 people in the district who we think are Republicans, but they didn't vote. That's not a lost district. That just means that we need to up our game and get our people out to vote, mm -hmm. get the Republicans out to vote. So I'm not in this despair, hopeless mode of, wanting to leave Minnesota, I see so much potential and I think that we're right there. And in terms of my vision for the state, I think that we will only succeed when our party works together and we're all helping contribute to these similar goals, right? Like we need to work with the Carver County BPOU and they've been great to work with by the way, but it's gonna take us partnering with them because we have resources that we can bring to the table for that race, but every BPOU knows their area better than the state party does, right? Like I said, I grew up in Mendota Heights. I live in Plymouth right now. I've worked in the sixth district, um, but I don't know the ins and outs of, uh, you know, some county in CD1 or some Senate race in CD7 or, you know, a house district race in CD8. Those local people know what the issues are. They've talked to their friends and neighbors. And I think that my vision, again, for the party is just to have this partnership where we're on the same team, we're working together, we have similar goals that we've decided on together, and we're sharing resources and all pulling towards the win. That's really how I think that we can succeed. I think short of that, um, we can't all have our own goals and, and hope that we get over the line. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to work. That makes sense. Um, okay, now to the election integrity, which, you know, a lot of people, um, I think, are suspicious of lots of things and yeah. let me uh explain myself in the probably way too long way that i tend to do that um go for it and i have <laughs> i have heard that comment from a lot of people so 
uh, go ahead and explain. That I explain myself or take way too long no, to no, explain. No, 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 no. That, that they're concerned about oh, our elections okay. in Minnesota. Um, you've, heard, you've heard the other one too, don't lie. Mm, um, all right. Uh, so, when it comes to the machines, I know that is something that, you know, is brought up. And what I have always said, and I can't, I, I read an article uh, by Victor Davis Hanson, one mm -hmm. of my favorite writers, and then another guy that I can't think of his name, but it was very similar. Um, but when it comes to the machines, if some, you know, internal memo were to be leaked or you were to have some email where, a DFLer or what you know, whoever uh, whistleblower sent something out saying, you know, the the, the communication was, oh, we need to um, make sure to focus on this area so the machines flip votes. Like if that were to come out, I would go, yep, I believe it. <laughs> However, with that not being out there. The idea of machines flipping votes, and once again, this is completely my opinion, the machines flipping votes to me would mean that it is all over. Like we could have the most bulletproof plan, yep. explanation, candidates, yep. where 99% of people would agree with us mm -hmm. and we would still lose. Yes. And if we got to that point, then the experiment literally is over. Like there would be no reason to Vote, remain civil anymore. Campaign, whatever. I mean, it would yeah. be time for something terrible, and I can't get myself to that point. So it seems more likely that, and you know, I've got like I've said many times, I have family members that literally saw Trump as Hitler. Yes. And when you're faced with that type of irrationality, like you will do anything. To keep that man out of power so what it kind of and this is it goes back to the victor davis hansen article that i read it seems like you know is there voter fraud i'm sure well is there, there there definitely is yes and if are, I just... are a hundred thousand or maybe not a hundred thousand are, are thousands of you know homeless people being signed up and then having their ballots like these are real people do they have any idea what they're doing uh by well, casting their votes or having people help them cast their votes it's like you know so what i'm it's the gray yeah, area of... it's a very nuanced conversation especially in minnesota so let's just talk about like what is actually legal in minnesota for a second before we go into like um i guess quote unquote conspiracy theories for mm -hmm. lack of a better term yes so in minnesota like i said we don't have any provisional ballots and we also don't have voter id we are the only state in the country that has neither of those two things. So right there, you could make an argument that our election laws are not good enough, just based on those two things alone. Mm -hmm. So when I was in Kansas and I was campaigning down in Kansas, um, I heard way less complaints about election integrity. Because when you show up to vote, if they don't exactly know if you can be voting or not, they give you a provisional ballot and every single person has to um, present their ID. And so right there, the laws that that state has created are fair and transparent and reasonable. And um, they're ju it, they just don't allow the same uh, like level of, of complaining that we hear um, here in Minnesota, right? Sure. So when you look at our laws, just with those two things, 
people complain about that. Um, you can carry a ballot in for somebody in Minnesota. I think you can carry up to three ballots for people. And there's some clause in the law where they have to be unable to get to the poll or carry it in themselves. Right? Like, I couldn't just say, Daniel, I'm going to take in your ballot because you're more than capable of taking it in mm-hmm. yourself. But if you're in a nursing home, if you are in a hospital, if you are homebound, um, I don't know if homeless people fall under that uh, qualification. Um, certainly, if they don't have a car to drive to their polling place, maybe they do fall under that qualification. So, right there, that could be legal in Minnesota. You know, um, and so when people say um, our elections are fraudulent, you know, my first question is always, do you mean that our laws are bad and they're poor election policy and therefore our uh, results that we're getting are not accurate? Or are you saying that even though you dislike our laws, they're not being followed? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So there are really two different um schools of thought in the election integrity conversation Mm -hmm. and the hard part is until we win back uh the house the senate and the the governor's mansion we can't change our election laws and so we have to work with what we have Um, and it's difficult but it's what we have and so my attitude is well let's go out let's get to work Let's figure out what margin we need to win. Let's figure out what the best candidates would be. Let's figure out how much money we need to do it um, because we can't change the laws. And I think that sometimes what Republicans hear is, well, if the laws are horrible or there's fraud going on or the laws aren't being followed, why would I even bother to vote, right? And I had friends who worked in Georgia on that special after Trump lost the 2020 election. And there were a lot of Republicans that they told me that they talked to when they were out door knocking. These are RNC field staffers. And people said, well, they just stole the election from Trump. Why would I even bother to vote? Mm-hmm. And that is so toxic to our party. And mm-hmm. it directly impedes us from winning. So my attitude is let's figure out what work we need to do to win. And then once we get there, we can talk about how we want to change the laws. But we have to do it regardless. Um, we had a speaker... Jennifer, I uh, can't pronounce her last De name. Jornet. Yes. Yes. Who came in yep. to our, I think it was two months ago. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that she said that, like I'm, you know, like most conservatives, I like voting on the day. Yes. It's fun to go. It's fun to, yep. you know, drive my amazingly awesome 2003 Mercury Marauder. Right. Assuming it's not snowing and there's no salt on the ground yet. Right. Uh, to the ballot mm-hmm. and vote because yep. it's a fun thing to do to participate in your election process Uh, and one of the things she brought up was that and what the dems have completely cornered Mm -hmm. for a long time is the mail-in and how when you vote early and then you tell the party you have voted early they can take your name off of, of their list the money spending list. and then yes. there's no more money spent on trying to get you to vote when you're already a shoe in correct and that is something that never crossed my mind yep. and i was like that makes a lot of sense yep and i i mean there's absolutely no problem with voting on election day the mm-hmm. thing is though what we have to remember is that um i will classify both you and i as political nerds Right, like we love yeah. politics, we care a lot about it. You're probably we, we take very seriously our duty to vote, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but for the average American, if they have a job or they're working multiple jobs, or 
let's say that they you know live in a metro area and they rely on public transportation or they're a single parent or they aren't a single parent but they still have kids and their child is sick or something things come up that are very legitimate where people uh, are prevented from getting to the polls on election day mm-hmm. um if you look at it as having a bigger window than just you know the 12 hours on election day to vote more people are able to vote um and jennifer is absolutely right that um and well okay so let me explain this too this is we're going to go on a bit of a, a tangent but i promise i'll come back harvesting and chasing harvesting and chasing are totally different so you should harvest, explain yes if but you can do that now or if no, you I'll do going it. off on no, your no i'll do it now sidebar. so chasing ballots is 100 percent legal that is what she talked about harvesting is not legal yep when people say ballot harvesting what they typically mean is like someone going into an apartment building and knocking on the door and saying hey, I'm here to carry in your ballot for you. You know, mm-hmm. let's fill it out together and then I'll pick it up and I'll take it into the Dropbox or I'll mail it in. That's illegal. In Minnesota, again, you can't carry in more than three ballots in a cycle. or It's either a year or a cycle. I don't remember exactly. But you have to have a reason to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so in, in some states, that's not the case. But that's harvesting where you're literally going out and picking up and collecting and carrying people's ballots in. Chasing is when you look at who has been sent a ballot and then you contact that person specifically to persuade them to vote for your candidate and then also to persuade them to turn in their ballot. So Minnesota just changed the law to where we will be able to see in real time who has been sent an absentee ballot. So when I was in Kansas, and this is my tangent, um, every single day once early voting opened, and they had a much shorter early voting period than we did. I think ours opens like September 18th or something, and theirs didn't open until like mid-October. But in Kansas, every single day, the Secretary of State's office would send out a list of who they had sent a mail-in ballot to. So every single morning, I could see, okay, these X hundred people in X county just got their ballot today. And then we would know to start chasing those ballots. And so what we do is we, you know, you can send out a postcard to that person about your candidate. You can send them a text. You can call them on the phone. You can have a door knocker go and knock your door. And then the Secretary of State would also send us a list of ballots that had been turned in. And so once those people had voted, we stopped contacting them, whether they were in our persuasion universe or in our hard GOP, just get out the vote or turn in the vote universe Mm -hmm. because they'd already voted. And so we'd pull them off of all of our door knocking lists. We'd pull them off, off all of our phone calling lists, our texting lists our digital ad list because it's a waste of money to text somebody who's already voted, right? It's too late. We've we've missed them and we just have to hope to God that they voted for us. So yeah. that's that's chasing. It's when you specifically yep. spend money <clears throat> on that. It's not illegal. Campaigns do this. And mm-hmm. so um, campaigns across the country do this on both sides of the aisle. Now in Minnesota, we will be able to see in real time those ballots that are being sent out and those ballots that are being turned in. And so Got we it. can now chase ballots. And when it comes to a party who, you know, doesn't, I'm guessing the DFL in Minnesota has a lot more money than the Republican Party That's the other thing we should touch on quickly here. So the DFL, the party, in 2022 spent $36 million. The GOP spent four, and they still only barely beat us by less than a point in two statewide races. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't bring the numbers with me today, but I did crunch the numbers of like what the DFL had to pay per vote, you know, for for Tim Mm Walz and what the GOP had to pay per vote for Scott Jensen. The return that they're getting on their investment is abysmal. And so again, it's like, I, I just tell people who are like despairing about the Republican party in the state. It's like, 
they outspent us nine to one and we still only lost by 0.34 and 0.8%. Like, don't give up. Like, we are very much in this fight. We are very much in this fight. So that's why I took my job too, because I knew that there was so much that we could do to win. That is one of these next questions, but it relates to what you just said. How do we give conservatives hope for 26? I think that we share information with them. I think we share and say, look, look at Lucy Reams' district. These are the number of votes that she lost by. This is the number of ballots that weren't turned in. This is the number of people who didn't vote. You know, when you have somebody who loses by 432 votes, a good uh, field staffer can knock, like, if they're in a, you know, dense area, they can knock, like, 20, 25, 30 doors in an hour, depending on how many people are home or not. So if you, I mean, 200 and, or 432 votes, if you're hitting 30 doors in an hour, that's really not that many hours of door knocking. And so if it's just a matter of turning out 432 people in that area, one person could literally make that difference. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we share those things with people, it does give them hope. When we share the numbers with them, it does give them hope. Because let's say that we had spent the same amount of money as the Democrats. We really did a good ballot chase program. We really knocked on all of the doors of our low propensity voters and we encouraged them to turn out. But yet we still lost. Yeah, I would despair too. But that's not where we're at. Like we're not even close to that point. We still have so many things that we can kick into gear for 2024 and for 2026 to pull a victory home. And... I think what I've understood when it comes to the door knocking phenomenon, it is not like you're just being thrown to the wolves and knocking on doors that, you know, someone's going to answer and throw gasoline on you and then a match because you are a right wing fascist. Correct. It's more often than not, you are going to specific households that are Republican registered. Yes. Which well, is important because... Well, and let me just... I'm going to nitpick your language for a second here. Sure. But in Minnesota, nitpick we do away. not have party registration. So this is actually an important difference. So like states like Kansas, they have party registration where you can get a list from the Secretary of State of every single person who's self-identified as a Republican, mm-hmm. an Independent, and a Democrat. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in Minnesota. In 2020, they started the presidential primary. And so we can see... If people pull a Republican ballot or a Democrat ballot for the primary, we'll see that again in March of 2024. But until that point, the only way that we can figure out who people are is if we have observed them. Like, let's say I knocked on your door and you told me, I love Republicans. I always vote for them. I'm the most pro-America guy on the face of the earth. Um, I could observe you as a hard Republican. Mm. Or the RNC gives us data and they will make calculations about who someone is. So, for example... If they look at me, mid-20s woman, I live in an apartment in a purple suburb, um, they can probably calculate, especially if they get my spending history, um, who I am, right? So if they see on my credit card that I'm donating money to Black Lives Matter, or if they can see that I've you know, made a contribution um, on the FBC to uh, like Dean Phillips, who's you know the yeah. rep for my area, they can calculate and say she is most likely a hard Democrat, right? That's a little terrifying. It is. It is terrifying. But people they can look. So the RN or both parties can both look parties to see what you're can, spending money on. Can buy consumer data. 
So like, look Which at the fine print of your credit card statement. Yes, you can buy consumer data on everybody. So like, sure. your T-shirt that you're wearing right now, Black Rifle Coffee Company. Mm-hmm. When you bought that, if you used a credit card, your credit card company rolled that information to a billion different entities. Yeah. Oh yeah. And Which so when the parties when the parties buy that, yeah. then they can make calculations about you. The problem with the calculated uh, observations is that they're not always right. Sure. You know what I mean? So like, again, me, mid twenties woman, apartment, Plymouth. They might calculate that I'm an independent. They might calculate that I'm a lean Democrat or lean Democrat or maybe lean Republican, but that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Like I am a hard Republican through and through. I will mm-hmm. always vote, and I will always vote for Republican candidates. Um, and so it's really important that we go and contact these calculated people and figure out what their status really is, um, because yeah. if they if they are calculated as an independent, but they turn out to be a hard Dem, we observe them as a hard Dem. We don't want to be spending money on them. Mm-hmm. We'd much rather spend our money on somebody who's a Republican who has a lower propensity to vote. Yeah. So when you go out to door knock, we can literally target um, different groups of people. So like, for example, we can target independents. Like, let's say that your your district doesn't have enough Republicans to win if, only, if all the Republicans voted and just the Republicans voted. We can say this is a, a group of independents who are very likely to vote. Or we can say this is a group of lean Republicans who we need to convince to vote for our candidate who always vote early or who have historically voted early. I shouldn't say always or never when we're dealing with people and data because it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. We can also say this is a group of hard Republicans who are low propensity voters, meaning that in the past three, four, five election cycles, they've maybe voted in one or two, but we know that they're Republican and so we want to turn them out to vote. So yeah, it's not like when you go door knocking, we're just throwing you to the wolves and you don't know who you're going to be. And you can actually see on the app if someone is what their observed party is or what their calculated party is. You can see their voting history. You can see who else is in their household. So it's it's not meant to be a miserable activity. Yep. And the information that someone has or has not voted, mm-hmm. that is that is attainable information. Correct. So for example, in I could look I could look at our data center and I could see that you, Daniel, have voted on election day for the past, you know, four elections, whatever mm-hmm. it is. I don't know how you voted, but I can see that you voted. Okay. And now with the new changes to the law in 2023, we can see in real time if you voted early or if you've been sent a ballot. It's like the meat thermometer that my wife got me for Father's Day where I can watch the temperature go up. Yes. And I never thought that would be as fascinating as it is, but watching the temperature inside my filet mignon, which I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh-huh, right, yes. You're from uh, Edina. You should know how it's pronounced. Uh, but that is pretty That is pretty cool. That it is. That in real time you it can is. now, like a meat thermometer, Yeah, and the other, the other thing too is, you know, um, like I've heard candidates say on both sides of the aisle, they're like, well, you know, if we have good weather on election day, we should win this race. And it's like, it's not 1850. Like, mm-hmm. we cannot be putting our entire strategy on the weather. You know, if you know exactly how many votes you need based on past races and past past calculations, or maybe your candidates run for different office before, you know exactly how many votes you need. And you shouldn't just say, well, I hope that they'll all come in on election day. That's mm-hmm. horrible campaigning. You should be able to bank a lot of those votes before election day, and then, you know, just turn out the rest of your people on election day. Major party status update. 
I'm yes. guessing you this this has been going around. Yes, that, yes. Like, and oh yes, I'm actually glad that we covered this. This was on my um, I didn't like physically write a list, but in my head it was on on the list. Sure. So give us an update. Okay. So, Assure us that we're not about to all just be, uh, you know, taken away with the leaves this no, fall. No, 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 no. <laughs> not we, exist anymore. We will not be taken anywhere, and we will always exist. Um. So, prior to 2023, there were things in law. Um, that you had to qualify for to get major party status. So I think you had to get like 5% of the vote in a, a general election and, you know, statewide or different parts of the state. Um, you know, you had to have X number of candidates who ran on your party's ticket, um, just general things like that. But under the old laws, none of that was enforceable. So for example, um, you know, they did say that you needed to, or you were supposed to, do certain things or hand in certain pieces of info, but there was no enforcement mechanism. So even if you didn't do any of that stuff, you would still get major party status. They changed the law now to the point where the threshold went up, I think from like five to 8%. Um, you also now have to submit a list of conventions that have been held. Um, you also have to submit your constitution bylaws before December 1st of every year, same with the list of conventions. And then you also have to submit um, at least like 45 counties, legislative districts, your local party uh, structures. Um, now, the Democrats passed all of these laws last spring. A lot of them were rushed and really hurried. And so to be very honest with you, I don't even know if the Secretary of State's office and the Attorney General's office or whoever it is has even figured out exactly what they mean by this. So like, for example, the law said you have to submit a list of conventions held. And we emailed the Secretary of State to figure out what that means. And they send an email back and they're like, uh, you know, you have to submit, uh, or it means that you have to submit a list of all the conventions that were held in the 2022 and 2023 cycle. Well, that's unclear. Does the 2022 <laughs> cycle include 2021 or 2022 or both? Does the 2023 cycle include the future conventions in 2024 that our BPOU is having yet? Like, it's all just very, very unclear. So anyways, like a lot of things they've done, like, like out. so many of the things that the Democrats have done, like this whole school resource officer yeah, issue, the, sure. the marijuana thing where they legalized it without having guidelines in place. Like it's it's just a mess, especially from their end. So we got an email. The Minnesota GOP got an email this summer and they said, you know, hello, Minnesota GOP. And we sent this email out. Uh, you know, David sent it out in a mass email. They said this is to confirm that you qualified for major party status in 2023 and that you will have major party status through 2023, 20, uh, December 31st. And then they also gave us a list of things that they needed from us if we were going to keep our major party status come 2024. And so we went back and forth with them. You know, we submitted the Constitution and the bylaws again. We sent that out. Um, and then we've also submitted other pieces to them. And they have not been very good at getting back to us. And so we finally got our lawyer involved a couple of weeks ago just to kind of move this process along and, and get some answers. Um, but we have at this point submitted all of the pieces that they require and they need to get back to us and they need to tell us if those pieces are good enough or not, because according to the law, they are. And so I'm fully expecting them to say, yes, you have qualified for major party status. Um, and again, the deadline is December 1st. And so, you know, I know some people have said like, we are in you know, imminent danger of losing a, a party st major party status, or this is an emergency. You know, we're about to lose it. Mm -hmm. 
we have now two and a half months and we started working on this back in August and submitting these pieces. So again, if for some reason the Secretary of State would come back and say all of these things that are mandated by law, you guys haven't, uh, you haven't for some reason submitted them properly or they're not good enough or whatever, um, we have until December 1st to do it. Um, and you know, a couple people have told me that they think that the Secretary of State is just trying to disqualify us as a major party. That's like not okay. That will never hold up in in court. Mm-hmm. You know, if people are saying, uh, "Well, they did X, Y, and Z with the sole intention of getting rid of the Republican Party," that's not allowed. Like, you can't do that. Yeah. You can't write ex post facto laws to disqualify someone for something. And so, we will keep people updated as this goes. Um, I have, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with anybody who's concerned about it. Um, we've, we've sent out these pieces, but right now we're at the point where we've submitted everything and we're waiting to hear back. Um, and, and the, you know, the party's lawyers involved, but we like, this is a top priority. I literally check up on it every single day. Like I kid you not every morning. I'm like, where are we at with major party status? Um, and again, if for some reason they would come back and say that we don't have major party status, we're not just going to be like, oh, okay, sorry, I guess we don't get status. It's like, no, like it, there's going to be a, a legal fight of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, it is important. I mean, there's a lot of money on the line. There's the ability to have election judges or not and poll watchers and things like that on the line. Um, I have heard um, comments from some people. So part of the new law is that the, the chair of the party has to certify, or I guess it just says the party has to certify again. So it's like, who is this? The law is not well written at all. Um, the, the party has to certify that you have been in compliance with your constitution and bylaws. And so, um, you know, to my knowledge and to David's knowledge, we have been in compliance with our constitution and bylaws. And this is, you know, an open call. I've been on a couple of the Zooms that have been held. If someone is aware of an incident where a BPOU or another group violated their constitution and bylaws, please contact me and let me know about it. Um, David and I have been contacted with some incidents where people believe that the Constitution and the bylaws had been violated, but when we looked at them, when we talked to people on both sides of the issue, um, we didn't find a violation. You know, there are sometimes things that people are unhappy about or where they feel are, you know, maybe not fair, but that doesn't necessarily equate to a constitutional violation, Mm -hmm. right? Or it doesn't necessarily equate to not being in compliance with your constitution and bylaws. And so all of the situations that we've looked at, even if they're messy, even if they maybe were unfair, even if they weren't necessarily handled well, we've still been in compliance with our constitution and bylaws. So that's that's kind of where it's at. But Got it. um, the minute that we have major party status guaranteed, I will send that out, whatever we receive from the Secretary of State. Um, and like I said, if, if people are aware of things, like please have them contact me. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Let's get a little lighter. Sure. Right now. Okay. Has there been any surprises uh, in your? How long you've been doing this for a, mo- a little over a month? A little over a month. Yes. A month and ten days. Have yep. there been any surprises, um, either easier than you expected or harder? And I will give just the example of taking over this media coordinator position and yes. thinking that engagement, especially. Right social media was going to be easy and I'm finding out that it is not and that there is not a whole lot of engagement but I also then think about the fact that conservatives by nature are more of a leave me alone 
and yeah some of them yes a lot more solidarity leave me alone and Mm -hmm. i feel like that does sometimes tend to translate into lower engagement because as i have theorized and somebody else probably has too at this point throughout history that the right's religion is religion christianity you know not as often as we'd like but judaism they don't tend to vote republican as much but anyways the right's religion is religion and the left's religion is politics which is why i believe they have such meltdowns when they're when when they're when their god of politics doesn't serve them the way they wanted it to every four years or two years or every every two years with municipal elections so yeah um yeah it's uh back to the question of anything easier harder that you have been like oh i didn't expect that i will say um i will say um, never just for your awareness, like building a, a following on social media is really hard. And oh, like yeah. there are p- companies that literally get paid like buku bucks to be able yeah. to do that. So it is hard. <laughs> and to... I'm getting paid zero. Correct. And you're also not a no offense, like a social media paid uh, professional. You know. No. So it, it I'm is hard. Neanderthal. Remember. Well, I would like you to give yourself a little bit more credit. <laughs> uh, but yes, sure. Um, if that's how you want to self-identify. Um, I can't. With this job, I think one of the most pleasant surprises has been there are so many people across the state who want to help. Like, there are so many people who are like, if you need anything, just let me know. I had a gal come into our office the other day. As you know, Ari Fleischer is coming on Monday Mm -hmm. for a fundraising dinner. And she came in and folded the programs and did the name tags and laid out all the books and everything. Like, there are just so many people who want to help. Um, There are people who have volunteered to help plan caucuses. There are people who volunteered to help with our social media and share posts and write things and submit op-eds. And I I think that that's the good news in all of this. Um, I will certainly say, you know, major party status. I didn't expect there to be um, the level of intensity around it as there has been. I knew that there were some changes to the law and that we had to submit some additional pieces. And I knew that the Secretary of State's office... Um, you know, isn't like it's a it's a big bureaucracy. So I knew that that process wouldn't be mm-hmm. easy, um, but I didn't expect this level of intensity around it. Um, but again, when people care about our major party status, in a way, that's a good thing, right? Like this just means that a lot of people are paying attention. They're aware of the horrible changes that the Democrats made to so many of our laws this past spring, and they want to continue to help the Republican Party in 2024. Um, and granted, you know, I'd worked in CD6 before um, from Mendota Heights. You know, I lived in White Bear Lake before I moved to Kansas. And so I'd certainly worked with a lot of people around, you know, the CD6 and, and the metro area. But just getting to meet all the people in CD1, CD7, CD8 has been a lot of fun because we have a lot of good people on our team and they want to help and they're ready to beat the Democrats. And that has been a really, really pleasant surprise. The other thing I'll add is it has been a lot of fun to work with David Han. Um, he's just been absolutely phenomenal to work with. I know sometimes in politics, candidates can get the reputation of being like a little bit difficult. Um, or, you know, like, like have you seen the show Veep? No, but it's... The, the candidate who's like utterly ridiculous and she just refuses to do anything. David is such a hard worker. I've really, really enjoyed um, I'm not his campaign manager because I work at the party, but it's just really nice um, working with him. 
and he's he's like he's literally this afternoon he's at a, a picnic like a BPOU picnic you know what I'm here doing this so mm-hmm. he works really hard he's willing to do things um, he doesn't complain about stuff so it's good to just have a, a good boss to work for as well that's been really nice and that's just more of a personal note but yeah, it's, yeah. it's been a good month and ten days but yeah. Certainly a lot of work, you know, and I knew going into this too, that it would be a lot of work. Um, But, you know, so that wasn't necessarily a surprise, but just remembering like, yep, this is on my plate now too. You know, all right, we've got to check this off and check that off and, and do all of those things. You've probably kind of touched on it, but just a specific question. What do you think the biggest issue is facing the GOP party in Minnesota? And conservatives here. Yeah, I think that um, just integration. Like, I think that we need more integration between, you know, the major players, like the party, the House Caucus, the Senate Caucus, the Freedom Club, you know, the Jobs Coalition, all the C4s, um, the Congressionals, like all of the BPOUs, um, the activists, um, any nonprofit groups. Like, I think that the beauty of the Republican Party is that there is independence and people have different opinions and they have different priorities. But I think that we just need integration between all of those pieces. And we need to figure out legally, of course, you know, who's doing what, what the goal is, what the priorities are. And then we all need to be pulling in that direction. Mm-hmm. The good news is people want that. We have been working on that even before I started with the party. A lot of groups have been working with that, doing that, moving towards that. Um, but I think that is really what it's going to take to win in, in 24. That's my answer. Integration. Cool. Cool. Um, Virginia, obviously in 22 went from an absolute blue, um, paradise to seemingly now a pretty solid red. And I feel like I've heard mutterings that the same strategery to steal a word from Mm -hmm. back when SNL was somewhat decent back Mm. in the uh, early 2000s. Um, I have heard mutterings that there has been talk or... uh, Like a comparison between Virginia and... Or using the same strategy uh, people that helped is that... um, can you speak on that at all? And if you yeah, can't, uh... yeah, no, absolutely. So I, um, so number one, this change in Virginia didn't just happen overnight. Sure. So a couple of years ago, I went out to DC and I did the RNC's campaign management college. They do different training programs, and there was actually a woman there from Virginia who was a, a consultant, and she'd just done a lot of work in the state, and she was talking about how. I don't know my Virginia history perfectly here, so don't quote me, but either 10 or 15 years ago, they had some really devastating losses and they focused on, the word that she used was building a red underbelly in the state. And so they really focused on their school boards, their municipalities, city councils, like all of it. And they just said, you know, what can we practically do right now and where can we get those wins? And they've been working on that for the past, I think it was 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like overnight there was just this big flip. Sure. Right, like there was momentum being built and they were teed up to make that flip. I mean, the other thing too, the Loudoun County incident with that assault that occurred, just absolutely tragic. Um, but that really got the attention of a lot of parents. Oh, yeah. And the thing that Glenn Youngkin ca- campaigned on was 
you know, not like what parents should think about their kids' education, but just that they should be involved in their parents' education or that their children's education and that they had certain rights and responsibilities and privileges when it came to that, right? And so it was this general uh, campaign message that a lot of people could get behind. Um, in terms of comparing it to Minnesota, I do think that there is a relevant comparison. I don't know enough about Virginia, though, to know if we are teed up in exactly the same way that Virginia was to mm-hmm. turn that corner and make that flip. Um, in terms of using the same people, my theory in politics is that, again, local people always know their local areas best. Um, and so Minnesota, even if we do have similarities to Virginia, we are a fundamentally different state, right? The culture here is different. The people are different. The geography is different. The you know Very economic true. situation is different. Our industries are different. The DFL here is very different from Democrats in Virginia. Like every state Republican Party and every state Democrat Party, you know, kind of has their own vibe, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. word, or their own brand. Sure. Um, And the DFL Party here has a very different brand from the Democrats in Virginia. So while I think that there are absolutely things that we can learn, I don't think that you can ever just carbon copy a strategy mm-hmm. over. Our laws are very different here too. You know, every state has different um, laws about what the maximum contribution that you can give for your uh, campaigns. You know, so I think Minnesota, it's like, well, they dropped it actually. So other states, you know, sometimes states can take uh, or state candidates can take corporate contributions. You know, we can't do that here in Minnesota. Some states have a caucus system. Some states don't. You know, some states have you know, uh, conventions for just their congressionals. Some states have conventions for lower offices. Like, there are a lot of differences that you have to take into account. So you can't just carbon copy, um, but you also should take lessons away, if that makes sense. Yep. Yes, um, it does. I don't know if you listened to the podcast that David Hand did with Ken Martin. Alpha News literally just put out a story today on that. Um, but Ken Martin and David Hand had a, um, like, a 90-minute conversation just kind of like about the general state of the state you know from their unique partisan perspectives but then they ended up having a really long conversation about education and minnesota our scores our test scores are dropping like somebody showed me some numbers the other day that they pulled right off the minnesota department of education uh website and it was like one of the i think it was like the saint cloud district it was like 48 percent of students in one subject were meeting the benchmarks Mm -hmm. and so you know to carry over that message from Virginia of our children in Minnesota deserve a better education, totally relevant. Yeah. Um, during the podcast, the, one of the um, quote-unquote interviewers, one of the podcast hosts, uh, she asked Ken Martin, like, literally, just like very pointedly about school choice. And she said, you know, well, for families who live in Wyzetta, Minnetonka, you, know, you could throw Edina in there too, they have the means to cut a check and send their kids to... Uh, private schools right um and but she said families of color they you know historically um and this was you know within the context of the conversation um they may not have those same means and she said don't you think that those families should be able to make a choice in their child's education and access the dollars that we've allocated to their public education and ken martin literally answers he goes i don't think so and then he kind of like paused and then he like went into this explanation which basically boiled down to it's more important to support our public schools 
like the school as an institution than to ensure that our kids are getting a good education. <laughs> and I'm not against public schools by any means, but if the school is failing, the top priority is getting the kids in that school a good education. It's not, well, we have to fix the school and then hopefully that'll trickle down to educating children better. No, it's like if the school is failing, and David said this in the podcast, your second grader only has one shot at second grade. And so if there's another school that's performing better and they've got openings in second grade, no, it's never easy for a child to switch schools. But parents have the ability, and I would say, they or they should have the right to make that decision and say, you know what, the social consequences of switching schools are not as severe as the academic consequences of staying in this failing school for the rest of the year. Ergo, I'm going to take those dollars that are being spent at the public school and I'm going to go spend them at a better school. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's the right decision, but it is the right of the parent to make that decision. Mm -hmm. So again, back to Virginia, we certainly have a ton of educational issues in this state. Um, The DFL comms director was on the podcast as well, their state party comms director, and he brought up Wisconsin. You know, he said he lived in Wisconsin and sometimes in Wisconsin, you know, schools would like shut down in the middle of the year and then the kids would have to go back to a a school if they weren't meeting the right requirements. And so I looked up some of the comparisons between Minnesota and Wisconsin and in certain subjects for certain grades, Minnesota is actually below the national average of, you know, uh, like quality education and Wisconsin was above the national average. So the DFL really just, if they have good talking points on this issue, I haven't heard them yet. Um, but they, they are not going to they are not going to win when it comes to to an issue like this. And David pointed this out as well with with Ken Martin. You know, historically, education has been one of the big issues for Democrats, right? Like they have owned it, they have prided themselves on it, they have controlled it, especially in Minnesota. Um, right. But it's it's just not working. And I think that. It, the most frustrating thing for me in that podcast to hear, like as a former teacher, you have to be able to admit that what we're doing isn't working if only 48% of the kids are performing at grade level in any school district, in any part of the state. Like you have to be able to say, these kids deserve better. It's not working. And maybe we don't have like a perfect solution yet on either side of the aisle, but we're never going to get there if Ken Martin and the Democrats can't admit that our students deserve better and something needs to change. Like that is step one in fixing the problem. And I just did not hear that from them. And that literally breaks my heart Mm -hmm. because all of our students in this state do deserve a high quality publicly funded education. And to say that that supporting our public schools or funding our public schools is more important than ensuring that the kids in those schools are succeeding is just so sad like mm-hmm. it's it's absurd and that's not the point of a publicly funded education either the point of a publicly funded education is to ensure that every child has the means to get a quality education it's not to to put up schools and then well the school's there regardless of how it does no yeah. it's like the school is meant to serve the kids and if the school isn't serving the kids I'm not bashing public schools but i'm just saying let's help those kids like something needs to change they're the priority well yeah and if a failing school was all of a sudden losing kids and then that school was not getting the same amount of money, mm-hmm. you would think that a rational person would say, well, we need to make this school better. Correct. So people don't leave this school. So I don't but, understand and, what the... Well, and Ken Martin kind of made that point. He said it's really important to fix our public schools. And it's like, yep, if a school is failing, we, we do need to work on fixing it. 
but we can't just say there's no option for the kids stuck there in the meantime while we fix it. Because how long does it take to fix a school? Like that's not an easy project. But say that there's a kid who's stuck in a failing school and halfway through the year their parent goes to conferences and they realize that their child's not meeting the benchmarks Mm -hmm. and the school doesn't have the ability to turn things around by the end of the year. I think that that parent should be entitled to the dollars that are being spent on their kid and they should be able to switch schools and send their child to a better school where their needs can be met. And then, yes, we can absolutely work on fixing these schools. But again, the priority is the kid, not the school. Always the student, mm-hmm. ne- not the school. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, we'll f- wrap up the, the Minnesota subject matter. Yeah. We were talking about the cost of gas mm-hmm. before we started recording. Yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> my utility bill for that came due like two days ago mm-hmm. here in Buffalo was $377. Okay. <laughs> for What did it used to be two years ago or three years ago? Do you remember? Uh, probably the mid ones. Okay. And we also had insulation. And now I understand that we had a hot August and yeah. we had a hot uh, July. Yeah. Um, we had insulation added to okay. our attic. Okay. So you would have thought. But what I'm getting to here is, and I understand that there is only so much a state could do, even if, you know, paradise happened and right. the conservatives took over everything right, right. in 26 yep. and in 24. Um, so I understand that there's only so much that can be done. But yeah. I mean, if you look at the Wall's 2040 plan, mm-hmm. it is positively insane. Oh, in terms of just electricity bills well, and utility I mean, bills and access and the, the, well, to power and heating your home and reliable sources of energy? Yeah, and, it is. And the idea that you know, that gasoline engines are, the you know, terrible. And uh, right. that, what's funny is I told you that we went to a wedding in North Minneapolis yes, last night. Yep, yep. Well, since seventh grade, one of my favorite vehicles, one of my favorite cars has always been the 1980s era Chevy Caprice. Okay. Just the giant box, the giant mm-hmm. tank of a car. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen those cars forever. However, I probably saw seven of them in North Minneapolis, which what I'm getting at is that those are cars that are incredibly old, mm-hmm. not great gas mileage, but they run forever and you can find them. And you can maintain them and yep. they keep going. Yep. Not like, <laughs> yeah, the, the economics of North Minneapolis are yeah. probably not like they are in Buffalo or Edina or anywhere. Right, right. Yeah. But there's tons of old cars where people who aren't able to afford a newer car mm-hmm. or a Tesla or any type of... Or any electric vehicle. Any type of electric well, vehicle. That's, and that's what it boils down to, Daniel. Like, I will never forget, I was at a, a campaign event once and I was talking to this couple and you could tell that they were very successful financially. They were telling me about how, you know... Um, you know, his career had taken them to Zurich and then they'd lived in other parts of Europe and they'd lived all around the country and they, he just had this wonderfully successful career and he really enjoyed it. And that's awesome. I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. But we started talking about gas prices and the wife told me, she said, 
you know, she said, if I have to pay more money for an electric vehicle, she said, that's okay because I'm willing to sacrifice my money to preserve the environment. <laughs> and I literally said to her, I said, you are coming from a place of enormous privilege. There are very few families who are able to say the same thing, who are able to say, I can absolutely pay more money this month or this year for an electric vehicle because not everybody has that ability. And so when you look at a party like the DFL, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, they're <laughs> supposed to be supporting, like you're an iron worker. Like they are literally supposed to be supporting people like you. But you're telling me that your bills are high, money is getting tighter, like you are being left behind. And I'm, this is not to pick on you. Tons of people in middle America are being left behind Big by time. the Democrats' policies. And so this woman who you know lived in Zurich and they'd been all over, I told her, I said, you know, I said, one of my best friends from college, she's married to a police officer and they just had a baby and she uh, wanted to stop working for a little bit to take care of her newborn. And in this economic climate, it's nearly impossible. Like they are barely getting by with his salary every single month. And I mm -hmm. said, they're not as privileged as you. They can't afford an electric vehicle. And she just kind of paused and she was like, you know, she said, you're right. She's like, I guess that not everybody is in that situation. And I'm just like, Shocking. Yeah, no duh. Not everyone is in that situation. And so if you want to drive an electric car, more power to you. You know, if you can afford a Prius or a Tesla or whatever it is, and you only have to go short distances, that's like, this is America. You have a right to drive that car. But to say, okay, we're going to enact a policy that disproportionately harms people um, who do not earn as much money, that is so unfair. And it is a very, very elitist policy. So until I see a policy that doesn't do that, um, that's where I'm going to use elitist. It's, yeah. it's really elitist. And I guess maybe the there was a question in there possibly. <laughs> maybe I lost it, but I guess the what I was getting at was that should everything happen, you know, it's that seems like something that oh a priority yes that we absolutely need to and obviously you can't yes. the a state can't. You know, right. only has so much over the incredibly high cost across the nation of certain things, but right. But I mean, when it comes to how we, you know, use Minnesota's energy, um, it's it's absolutely um, it, it's absolutely within our purview. I mean, even like look at northern Minnesota and all the mining. Mm -hmm. um, part of that has been shut down federally. Part of that has been shut down at a state level. So again, like let's say that I, I do want to force everybody to drive an electric car or I want to, you know, give some sort of a tax break to everybody to own an electric car. Where are we going to get the parts to build these electric cars if we can't mine them out of Minnesota? You know, we have so many resources up north and especially in the 8th District with Sauber. Um, I personally am not comfortable driving a car that I know has been made with child slave labor in Africa or in Asia. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with that. Morally, I am mm -hmm. so opposed to that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to buy a vehicle that has been sourced with parts that have been come by immorally. Like, that's just sickening to me. Yeah. So it's like they're not, but then the Democrats are also not allowing these things to be sourced responsibly. And so then it's like you're just between a rock and a hard place. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But yes, in, in terms of like securing reliable energy, especially in Minnesota, like especially in Minnesota with our horrible winters and then our, you know, hot summers. I mean, not as hot as other parts of the country, but still, I mean, August, it gets hot. It gets up to 105 degrees. Um, yeah, energy, energy security is definitely a, a priority. Like that actually is, I would argue, a function of the government. Mm -hmm. Like they should um, be able to regulate that industry and ensure that people are, are 
you know, uh, that they have reliable energy. Yep. So we're a little over a year away. We'll go finish this, close this all out with yeah. some uh, national stuff. Um, okay. Did you watch the debate? I'm guessing you I did. I actually went to the debate. Oh, in Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. Ah. So the um, RNC, they do a summer meeting every year. And so the chair, the executive director, and then the two RNC committee people um, have to go to the summer meeting. It's not like all fun and games, even though it is fun. But they do. They did a lot of like ED training. So like mm-hmm. for you know old EDs, new EDs, they did some training for us. Um, I was only out there for one, uh, two nights, maybe one night. Um, but I actually did get to see the debate in person. Huh. So, um, yes, I guess what's your question? Uh, thoughts? Do do you, um, and this is a question I asked on Facebook and Twitter. Yep. Do you have a winner that night? Um, if I you're did. allowed to do this. Are well, you allowed to have your own opinion? Well, I do have my own opinion. <laughs> Are you I, allowed I have to say to it say, out loud? I have to say as a caveat, the Minnesota uh, Republican Party will support whoever the nominee is. Sure. My opinion is that I don't think that there was necessarily like one person who popped out ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, Nikki Haley did a lot better than a lot of people were expecting her to do. Um, I think that she had some really good answers on different topics that the other candidates didn't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Ron DeSantis had some really good answers. Um it was interesting to actually be there and hear like all of the booing that like Chris Christie <laughs> yeah. got and just to kind of, you know, like there were points where they literally had to pause the debate because people were so upset about things that, you know, were being said that were anti-Trump or, mm-hmm. you know, too establishment or swampy or whatever. Um, I think it was interesting to see uh, Ramaswamy, uh, Vivek on, on the debate stage. Um, I think I have heard a lot of comments from people where they just think he's kind of like, cocky and pretentious and they they really didn't appreciate his his kind of like like a i a don't snarky yeah like a snarky condescending, flippant yep. condescending attitude they didn't appreciate that so i don't think that the debate was necessarily this is my personal opinion i don't think it was helpful to him you no. know after the fact um and i think that because I was like, I had been listening to him on a bunch of podcasts. Like mm-hmm. he was on with Mike Rowe. He even went on Bill Maher. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on Brett Weinstein's, mm-hmm. if you're aware of him, who mm-hmm. was canceled from Evergreen out there years yep. ago. He went on his podcast, and yep. it seems like he he changed up his formula that was gaining him so much traction leading up to that debate. Mm-hmm. Like he was. So much more, like, did you see the the interaction with the woman that was the LGBT um, activist Mm -hmm. and asked him? And he, I mean, he gave a response to her that was so spot on that she basically just responded with, thank you, and walked away. Yeah. Like, he, he seemed to change up his formula to, like, a much more bull in a china shop that night yeah well i mean and there's i feel like there's only one true bull in the china shop and that is trump <laughs> right well and again you know um the other interesting thing too to watch is just like how the candidates feed off the energy in the room you know like when you've got that many people in the stadium um you know they're talking to the stadium but they're also talking to everybody who's watching on tv or everybody who's listening um and so I do think that, you know, you see a different side of them 
But I've just heard a lot of comments from people that they're not happy with how Ramaswamy came off. In that. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard some comments from a couple of people and they're like, oh, we loved it. Yeah. You know, we love the attitude. We love that he's yeah. just willing to tell people whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see how our primary goes in March. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, like the thing that I heard so frequently in Milwaukee, like even, you know, Chris Christie who got booed, even Chris Christie would be a way better president <laughs> than Joe Biden. So whoever we end up with, they will be infinitely better than Joe Biden. You know, Chris Christie might not like Trump, but um, he's really tough on crime. You know, we mm-hmm. need that in our country right now. So even yes, if we're not getting true. every piece that we want, we'd at least be getting much a much better outcome than Biden. So, but I don't know. We'll see. Are you willing to pick a of well, them all who I, you would like? I don't. I don't have one at this point. Okay. Like, like I was saying, okay. like I think Nikki Haley. Uh, you know, she did better than I. Um, have previously seen her do. So, like, she went up a little bit in my running. I thought DeSantis continued to do a good job. You know, he went up a little bit in my running. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't I don't have, like, a, a perfect front runner at this point in my mind. Because the other thing that I look at, too, it's like, well, who can win? You know, it's like, they really probably all agree on 80% of their policies and 80% mm-hmm. of their stuff. And sure. so it's really just, like, they share the same message, but who can deliver that message the best? Who can be the most effective fundraiser? Who is going to work the hardest? Like as an operative, I think that I obviously care about ideology, but like once that ideology box is checked, like I just have so many questions. Like you would not believe how many candidates like lose their races because they're not willing to work hard or how many candidates don't like to fundraise and they don't do a good job of it or how many candidates just aren't able to communicate a message to donors or maybe they're really good at talking to donors but can they talk to the grassroots no okay well i'm sorry then you're not the best candidate for this Mm -hmm. so we'll kind of have to see how they develop and and what they do um but i don't know to be totally honest with you in my mind i do not know who is the most electable candidate thoughts on trump participating or not see i obviously the first thought is well yeah he has to be up there but then i started and i've listened to tons of you know radio and podcasts uh and i kind of started going you know like we saw him as president Mm -hmm. when he's up there he sucks so much air out of the room i guess i'm not terribly uh discontent over him not being there in order to see the and have the rest of the field get more airtime well i will say so i mentioned i went to but i'm also not saying that i think it's good he's not there it's just it was a way to look at it and go yeah you know we know him yeah well um we know what his president may look like right um at the iowa caucuses in 2016 to my knowledge i don't think that he went to the iowa caucuses in 2016 I, 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 we'd have to look it up, but I remember I met a bunch of the candidates there, but I did not, we did go to, you know, um, I don't think he was there. I really don't. So, um, it's such an anomaly. It's, he is, he is (laughs) absolutely an anomaly, but, um, it's his prerogative. If I would argue though, that every single person who gets elected to be the president of the United States is an anomaly, right? Like you have to be a pretty out of the box or you know, um, unique individual to get that. Like, that is a hard thing to attain. So I do think that in a sense, like, everybody, you know, every president, like, even Obama and Joe Biden, whose policies I absolutely despise, you know, they still, like, they still accomplished this feat and they got there somehow and they beat everybody else to it. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, they are, you know, kind of anomalies. But 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly Trump's prerogative whether or not he participates. Um, I do think it would have been a very different tone of the debate had he participated, but he's very much in the running. And so whether or not Big he's time. there, voters are still comparing him to these other candidates in mm-hmm. their head. You know, And when they cast that primary vote or when they caucus, um, he still will be compared whether or not he's, he chooses to be on the debate stage. So. Yep. Okay, that's pretty much all I have for you. Unless awesome. you want to close out with any thoughts, any um, deeply intellectual or non-intellectual suggestions or anything. Well, I, um, I don't really have a, a whole lot of deep thoughts to close. I would just really encourage people, right now, there are a lot of school board races on the ballot. Um, I seriously think that every single person should be able to donate two, three, four hours of their time and go knock 100 doors in their local school board race. So if you're not doing that, I would highly, highly encourage you to do that. Um, I am grateful that you invited me to come on, so thank you. Um, My pleasure. The best part of being ED is meeting good people all across our state. Like, I have the best coworkers of any job I could think of. I know we're not technically coworkers, but, like, I get to work with people like you. Like, mm-hmm. I get to work with good people. Like, that is phenomenal. Um, and I will say, I'll put, I'll say my email and phone number here. Um, my email, it's AEM, Anna Elizabeth Matthews, at MNGOP.com. Um, my phone number is 651-968-6293. I love meeting people. I'm more than happy to do podcasts like this. I am more than happy to answer questions. If people have, you know, questions about like what my vision is for the party, or if they have questions about major party status, or if they have questions about how the presidential process works next spring, or if they have questions about how to get involved with the school race, I'm more than willing to answer them. So um, please reach out. If I haven't met you yet, please introduce yourself. Um, and I think with that, um, just thank you for having me on, and, and thank you for all that you're doing as the, the new media coordinator. For I'm not doing much. Well, you are doing <laughs> a lot. Producing a podcast is no joke, um, and you're a volunteer. So we, we really only can see changes when people are willing to step up and do things like that that is the bread and butter Agreed. of, how, of how politics gets done it's like you either need people who are you know devoted to working 80 hours a week and getting paid for it or you need people who are willing to in addition to their already busy lives volunteer time and get stuff done yeah so thank you uh we will i will put i will have you write down what you just said yep. and i will put your email and your phone number i'm Assuming this is your personal cell phone that you're going to yeah. answer at all hours of the day. I don't actually answer at all hours <laughs> of the day. Please do not call me before 9 o'clock in the morning. And please do not call me after 9 o'clock at night. Uh, otherwise, I, there's a chance that I... Do you want to give your home address as well? My home address? No. <laughs> okay. I do not. Our office is in Edina. It's yep, on the website. I know. I'm going to stop by one day and I'm going to put my dirty, dirty foot boots on your desk <sighs> after a day of Daniel. miserable... Sometimes miserable iron work. Well, I'd love to. Have <laughs> and I know exactly where I'd that is. I'd love to have lunch with you. Please keep your boots on the floor. Okay. We can arrange well, something. Maybe. Um, but yeah, no, our op- I don't have the office office uh, office address memorized. But no, it's open. I did at one point. It's right on Highway 100 in in the Industrial Boulevard area. Yes. Yep. Yep. See, there you we're go. open from I'm nine to five. Lying. People are free to stop by. So, yeah. But yeah, we're we've got great momentum. People are really wanting to beat the Democrats in 2024. And again, just remember, we're right there, 0.34 and 0.8%. We're literally yeah. right there. Yeah. And that is my cat asking to go outside. So we're All going right. to close Lock this up. off. And uh, 
Thank you, everybody, for listening once again. Episode number seven, I believe, is what we're at now. Anna Matthews, the co... No, the executive director. Executive director of the Minnesota GOP party. That is all. Until next time, fellow right-wingers in Wright County. Okay, bye.